And uh, I uh, help with pastoral duties in the Mafra Church these days. Uh, it's my great privilege to bring the word to you this morning. So uh, please turn in your Bibles to First John. We're starting a new series today in uh, the Epistles of John. Uh, some fairly brief letters tucked up at the back of the New Testament. So if you're not quite sure where to find First John, then turn to the very back of the book. You'll find Revelation, Jude, and then 3, 2, 1, John. We're starting in First John today. Uh, so let's pray and uh, we'll get down to some serious business with the word. God of light and life, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. So we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds today. Uh, fill us with a, a godly desire to engage with your word and to obey those things that we find revealed to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some years ago, my dad was invited by uh, a younger friend. Uh, he was a friend of the family, a bit older than my brothers and me, but he'd uh, been elected to be the, the president of the Christian Union Group at Monash University. And so they had a, a ceremony one evening to install him as the, the incoming president of the Christian Union. And so my dad went along to it. And there were formalities, as there always are at these things, but at one point in the formalities, a man stood and became quite disruptive. And uh, it was clear that his entire purpose for being there that night was to uh, to spoil the event. And uh, so Dad told us when he got home that he himself, having been a Christian for many years, wasn't quite sure what he should have done. Uh, but this person was intent on disrupting, and the Dad said he seemed intent on evil. Well, the young lady, clearly a member of the Monash Union Christian uh, Monash Uni Christian Union, stood up and said to the man, she rebuked him. And she said, is Jesus the Christ and has he come in the flesh? And the man left. It was a spiritual encounter. It was an instance of spiritual warfare writ large. This young lady knew her Bible, she knew First John and she knew exactly the words to apply in that situation. Is Jesus the Christ and has he come in the flesh? Now that's a power-packed little sentence. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he's the anointed one of God that the whole Old Testament is written in anticipation of. The Christ is to say he's the Messiah. Christ is just the Greek way of saying Messiah and Messiah is the Hebrew way of saying the anointed king. The one who was set aside by God to rule not just his people but ultimately the whole world. And so to call Jesus the Christ is not to give him his surname. I'm Steve Messer. Messer is my last name. You've all got a last name too. Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's his title. Jesus' name is Jesus of Nazareth. In his humanity, Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus Christ means that he is the king who God had promised to send, not just Israel, to, not just to rule Israel, but to rule the whole world. Is Jesus the Christ and has he come in the flesh? The next part of the challenge is, was he a human? Was he a genuine, living, breathing human being in the same way that we are? And yes, he is. Jesus is God from all eternity who had never, there'd never been a time in the, in the entire span of eternity when, when Jesus as the word of God or the son of God had not existed. But there was a day when he was born as a human and he took on a body as frail and as uh, prone to weakness as ours he was genuinely human always God and always human 
that was the challenge this person put out. Now, when we're talking about Jesus, we, we think about Jesus in terms of two things, his person, who he is, and his work, what he does. And all of the errors that have crept into religion and into pseudo-Christian cults will centre on one of those things. They'll fail at one of those points. Who is Jesus, his person? Is he the divine son of God from all eternity? Is he the one promised to reign over the whole world? So that's one failing, the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. What did Jesus come to do? Well, we know he was a great teacher and a prophet, but ultimately his work took him to the cross. And Jesus died not by accident, not because he'd lost control of events. He, di- he died because that was part of God's plan so that people like you and me could be rescued from a holy, righteous, perfect God who is angry that his human creation has rebelled against him. There was no other way that we could be put right with God except that a perfect substitute take our place and die. So when errors are made about Jesus, they're usually made in, in, in respect of two things, his person, who he is, and his work, what he does. So cult groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons and so on, they differ on who Jesus is. Islam recognises Jesus as a prophet, but they do not acknowledge him as divine. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't recognise Jesus as divine. They say, oh yes, he was, he was the greatest teacher of all time. They put him a little bit above Gabriel in the rank of angels, but they don't acknowledge him as God. The errors that have crept into thinking are centred on those facts of who Jesus is, his person and his work, what he came to do. First John is rich in understanding, helping us to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. So First John chapter 1, read it along with me please. I'm going to read it in short chunks and I'll offer some comments about, about each of them as we go. So starting at, at chapter 1 verse 1 of First John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now as we come to a series of studies on this letter of First John, it is a letter, but it lacks a lot of the things that we would expect to see in a letter that we have included in the New Testament. There's no indication in the letter itself who wrote it, there's no indication in the letter itself who received it. Now, if you think about Paul's letters, it always starts with I, Paul, and he tells you who he's writing to, the Ephesians or the Galatians or the Romans or whatever. But there's none of that in this letter. The other thing that's quite different about this, especially in comparison to Paul's letters, is that Paul's letters seem to flow along in a pretty logical order. They're set out where he's making a case and then he defends it, and, and, and it's set out in this very logical progression of thought that's a lot like a, an argument that a lawyer might make in court. But John's letters 
seem to go around on themselves. And so they've been likened to a musical symphony. Uh, Rather than this linear progression from one thing to the next, they've been likened to a musical symphony where if you hear this complicated piece of music, you'll hear, oh, I've heard that bit of melody before. And then it's developed again later on and perhaps a bit added to it. And then when the whole symphony is brought to a conclusion, you'll hear all of the major themes stated again, but with some variations. John is writing his letter because he wants to assure the people who he has this great pastoral concern for that they belong to Jesus and their eternal destiny is sure and safe. Now that's good news. We need to know these sorts of things. It's one of the biggest challenges facing Christians uh, and as a pastor I've had many conversations with people where, they have, where they've told me that they, they wondered if they were really saved. They wondered if they were really safe for all eternity. John says he writes this letter so that we can know that in eternity our destiny is sealed and we are safe from the wrath of God. But John had uh, particular cause to write these things. The situation is not spelled out, but we can, we can read between the lines and work some things out. Now, in these, these words that we've read so far, notice how often John uses plural first-person pronouns, we or our right look at how he begins that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and touched with our hands john is saying everything i'm writing is the product of eyewitness testimony i was there when it happened says john but not just me he writes on behalf of others and so clearly that's the other apostles john was one of jesus 12 disciples Uh, He was part of that apostolic band that Jesus commissioned to take his message to the world. So John writes, we've seen it, we've heard it, now we're telling you. He's writing with the authority of one who was there and who knows what happened. John is wanting to establish the historic basis of Christianity He wants his readers then and now to know that this is not fairy stories. This is not make-believe. They've met with Jesus. They've heard him preach. They've eaten with him. And after his resurrection, they even touched him to prove that he wasn't a ghost. Now, there's many parallels between the beginning of John's Gospel and, and 1 John. And they both remind us of the very beginning of the Bible. Remember the first words of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God. Well, in John's gospel, he says in the beginning was the word, and clearly the word is Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus is the word of God? It means he is God's best expression. If I give you my word, if I make a promise to you and I say I give you my word, What I'm doing is I'm saying I want you and what you understand of my reputation to be the guarantee that what I've said will actually happen. Well, my word is not nearly as good as God's word because God never makes mistakes and he never lets his people down. Jesus is the visible expression of God's character. He is the visible expression that God will keep his promises. So to say that Jesus is God's word means that Jesus has been put in a form that we can understand and get and yet he comes with all the authority of God. 
Now, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and through everything, the Word, the world was created. The whole of the universe was created through Jesus, the Word of God. And so John picks that up in his in his epistle, and he talks about how this Word was made manifest, the Word of life. He says that the Word was eternal. In other words, there has never been a time when Jesus didn't exist. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, amongst others, they're, they're part of a an ancient heresy that said that Jesus came into existence. And, and, and so they, uh, they followed the teaching of, a, of a, a heretic from the very early days of the church who said there once was a time when he was not. Well, there has never been a time when the word of God didn't exist and John wants us to understand that. But he says the word of life, the, the, the word of eternity has come into time and we've had lunch with him. And so John says this is important. Now, what, why is John writing? What in particular is his concern? One thing you'll need to remember as you read through this book is just how much affection John has for his readers. And so he addresses them repeatedly as my children or little children or beloved. Now, John was an old man. Uh, we believe that this was amongst the very last things that were written that have gone into the New Testament. We know that Jesus died around about AD 30 in the first century. We believe that First John was written probably as late as AD 95. By this time, John is an old man and he's the last surviving apostle. It's told to us by Christian history that all of the apostles, all of Jesus' followers, his immediate followers, died unnatural deaths except for John. And so John was an old man, and he's an old man with a reputation of love for the people that he leads. And so he addresses these people as beloved and dear children or little children. So he's writing as a father figure, intent on passing on the things that these dear children need to know. But he's writing in the light of some dreadful things that have happened in their churches. So just turn across the page there to, uh, to chapter 2. And we can gain a glimpse of what it is that John's addressing. Chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. And so you'll see this familiar address. He says, children, it is the last hour. Now, we'll go into detail on this in the coming weeks. But children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So the crisis that has led to John writing this letter is that people have left the church and it's rattled the confidence of the people that have remained. And it's probably led them to wonder, well, who are the true Christians? Are the ones who have left the real believers or are the ones who have remained? the real believers how can we know that we're on the right side of the team now john tells them that the people who have left never actually belonged because if they had belonged they would have stayed but john characterizes them as antichrist that means people who are opposed to jesus god's anointed king so these are people who are not believers this is not a different way of being christian these are people who have either never really believed or who have departed from true belief now we know a fair bit about john's situation because christian history tells us that john 
ministered in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in what we would now call Turkey. Back in those days when the Bible was being written, uh, the, the, the European and Mediterranean region was dominated by the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, Ephesus was one of the key cities. It was a large city in population. It was a very prosperous city financially. But we read about it quite a few times in the Bible. So when we've been looking at the book of Acts in recent times, when you get to Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul goes and preaches in Ephesus and he preaches with such power and to such effect that he has a damaging effect on the business that people were running, making little artefacts of the local goddess Artemis. Artemis had this massive great temple dedicated in her honour. If you go to Ephesus today, you can see the remains of it. But it was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, a massive, great, impressive building. And, and so people made a living making little statues of Artemis that you could take home and little copies of the temple. And Paul's preaching was of such effect that the trade of these people making this stuff was affected. And so they said, we've got to get rid of Paul. And so they took him to the theatre, which is still there, and they wanted to kill him. But then the Roman government uh, intervened and Paul was spared. But we read in Acts chapter 19 that one of the characteristics of the Ephesian people was that they loved magic. And so because Paul's ministry had such an effect... We're told that lots of people burned all their magic charms and their magic books. And that must have made quite a bonfire. And so we could wonder if after 30 or 40 years have passed, whether maybe some people in the church have decided, well, some of that magic was good fun. wonder if we could mix a bit of magic and a bit of Jesus. Maybe they've gone back to some of the old ways and tried to blend the two. Now we know more about Ephesus because in Acts chapter 20, Paul has finished one section of his travels. He's on the way back to Jerusalem and he gets near to Ephesus. He gets a day's walk away from Ephesus and he sends a messenger to the elders of the church in Ephesus and he says, come down and meet with me because he's got a message for them. And we read that in Acts chapter 20. But amongst other things, Paul says to these Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church that he's left behind, he says, after I go, I know that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So Paul had predicted that in the future of the Ephesian church, there were going to be false teachers who would drag away converts. John is now ministering 30 years after Paul was there and he's dealing with the fallout of exactly what Paul said would happen. Now Paul, one of his great protégés was Timothy and we read in 1 Timothy that Timothy was left in Ephesus to be the leader of the church and Paul writes to Timothy, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrines, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God. He says in 2 Timothy, there's going to come a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears and accumulate false teachers for themselves. That's the situation that John's writing to. All of those things that Paul had seen as coming uh, in embryo are now fully fledged. And people have left the church and it's rattled those that have remained. The last time we read about Ephesus in the Bible is in Revelation. 
in the seven letters that Jesus wrote to his churches. The first of them is to Ephesus. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love. So the Ephesian church had been corrupted. And so John is writing as this older believer to people that he cares deeply about and his particular concern is that they are not dragged away with people that have ceased to be Christian or who were never Christian in the first place. These are people who had um, a range of, of beliefs. We believe that probably they were merging Jewish philosophy and, and Greek philosophy with a bit of Christianity and, and mangling all of them by doing that. But these were people who put a high value on knowledge they were people who believed that they had superior knowledge. Now we know this from Christian history, that these people were around about the place. Sometimes they're called Gnostics. Gnostic means knowledge, people who know a lot. And so probably what these people were doing in the church was getting alongside people and saying, well, John might say that, but I know better than John because I've had a special revelation. And people who have personal charisma people who have a persuasive personality can sometimes do real harm if attached to that is falsehood. And at best, these people were trying to get the Christians there to understand, well, there's two kinds of Christians. There's the superior ones and the inferior ones. Which one do you want to be? There's A-division Christians, there's B-division Christians. We're A-division because we know so much more. And people were being seduced by that. And against that, John writes this letter to let people know you are on the right team because you are listening to the word of an apostle who was taught by Jesus, who teaches what all the other apostles have taught. You're on the right team because the way you live demonstrates who you actually belong to. And so John gives three tests for what genuine Christianity looks like and he, he reiterates them several times throughout the letter. The first test is, do you believe what is true? The next test is, do you live a morally obedient life? And the third test is, do you love one another? And it seems that these false teachers and their followers had failed all three of those tests. So over and over, John writes, think about what you believe. Do you believe truly? Do you obey completely? Are you a person who demonstrates what you believe in love? We move on to verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So notice there, this is the message we've heard. In other words, John's saying, I was there, I heard it from Jesus. And now I'm passing on to you what I've heard from the word of life, what I've heard from the one who has eternal life. And not only have I heard it, we're proclaiming it. And it's not just me that says it, all the other apostles do as well. That was really important in the early days of the Christian church, to know that what you were believing and what you were reading came from the hand of an apostle. Because Jesus taught the apostles, the apostles taught others, and those others formed churches that took the message of Jesus and broadcast it throughout the world. Notice what he says there. What's the proclamation? God is light. Now there's lots of phrases throughout the Bible where you can read that God is something. Um, 
Later on in 1 John, we get another of John's great phrases, God is love. So God is light and God is love. What does it mean that God is light? Well, John says, in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, light speaks to us of good things. It was the first thing we read that was created in the beginning. There, uh, God created the heavens and the earth and God said, let there be light. Light's the opposite of darkness. There's no darkness in God. Light reveals, light warms, light directs, light gives certainty. Darkness is a place of doubt and despair and misdirection. It's a place where you can't really be sure. But God's light is, is the kind of light that you can navigate a safe path through a difficult world in. So to say that God is light means that he's the one that lights our way, that gives the warmth of his love to us as his gift. But his light also is a threat to any that cling to the darkness because his light exposes. And God's light will expose the, the error and the, the ways of these false teachers. And so John moves on in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now we know from history that the false teachers who were around about at that time very often made a distinction between spirit and flesh, between the spirit and the body. And one of the errors that they came up with was they said the spirit is good, it's pure, but the flesh is evil. There were some who taught Jesus couldn't possibly have been a human because the spirit is perfect, the flesh is evil, so how could God live in a body? And so some of them said what actually happened was the spirit of God appeared to have a body, but the body wasn't real. That's why John says we touched him, because you can't touch a ghost. But that's what some of these people were believing. Some of them were teaching also that because spirit is perfect and the body is less than perfect, it doesn't actually matter what you do with your bodies. And so they said, sin, no problem. Sin all you like, because it's the spirit that matters. And so when John writes here, that if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, he's probably directing those thoughts to the people that have remained in the church to reflect on the people that have left, people that were careless about sin, people that said, it doesn't matter because I've got a perfect spirit. What I do with this weak carcass of a body is immaterial. We can live as we please. John says, no. You'll know the people that have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit and the Apostles. You'll know the people that are in fellowship with that tradition by the way they live and how careful they are in doing that because God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If you want to be a person that meets with God's approval and blessing, walk in the light that comes from God. And so if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're not 
you don't belong to the family of faith well there's a problem because everybody knows we sin don't we or have we got any out there lurking with this suspicion that perhaps they're amongst these perfected ones i've met people who say that you only have to spend half an hour with them and you realize that they fall a bit short of their own standards but uh but the fact is that sin is going to be a continual problem for any of us and the, 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 the closer we get to God and the more we understand of his light, the more we'll understand of ourselves and how laden down with sin we are. But look at this wonderful promise in verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to confess your sins is to deal with them honestly. Not to keep them a secret, but to, to tell God, I have fallen short again. To be honest with God. And what we can, what can we rely on from God? Well, he's faithful. Which means you can count on him. He's true to his own word. God can be depended on. Will God forgive a person who honestly confesses their sin? Yes because he's faithful but don't ever forget this he's just and justice the justice of god will work itself out for people that cling to their sin and don't confess it god's justice will work itself out there but for those who count on his faithfulness and who confess their sins they can count on those sins being forgiven notice that jesus his son cleanses from all sin that that word cleanses is in the present tense we could equally say jesus goes on cleansing us because we need to be cleansed over and over again so don't make the mistake of thinking you're done with sin but when you find yourself falling short of god's standards confess your sin readily and cast yourself on his faithful mercy so we get to chapter two and just the first two verses there my little children there's that note of affection again my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world now that might strike you as being a tiny bit confusing we've just been told if we sin confess your sins now we're told i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin hmm what are we to do with this well a lesson i learned back in year nine english i had this teacher who let's say he was mean and he liked to trap innocents like me and uh, make us feel bad about ourselves now i'm not saying that, that nothing that i'm saying about him has any connection to god but i learned a lesson from him so one day i went to him and i said can i go to the library please and he said yes and so i set off to go to the library during english lesson and he said where are you going i turned back because i was scared of him i said going to the library sit down he said he and i was sort of left with my mouth open he said you asked can i go to the library of course you can go to the library the proper question is may i go to the library so physically i could go to the library and i think that's what john's saying here my little children i'm writing these th these so that you may not sin can you sin yes should you sin no 
God's will for you is that you don't sin. That's why he shines his light on your life. That's why he gives you the light of his word. So that we know what we should and we shouldn't do and we, we're given the, whole, the gift of the Holy Spirit who equips us to stay on the path. So yes, we can sin, which is why we need to constantly go back to Jesus. But may we sin? No, we may not. Does that help at all? It helps me. I hope, I hope, talk to me afterwards if that didn't make any sense at all. But uh, this, is, this is really very important. But notice again, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's a legal term. That's who Jesus is for us. It's one of the things who Jesus is for us now. Jesus took his body to heaven. When Jesus died on the cross, he was laid in the grave. He was raised up from the grave. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And now it's been said, there's a human member of the Trinity. Jesus took his body to heaven with the scars... And we have Jesus seated at God's right hand where he acts like a lawyer in the courtroom and he says, he or she belongs to me. Jesus speaks on our behalf. behalf. He speaks in our defence because that's what advocates do. So if we sin, when we confess our sin, we have Jesus the lawyer in the courtroom of God saying, please forgive them, I died for them. Now, it doesn't get better than that, friends. If you want assurance that your sins are forgiven, remember the cross, remember the price that was paid, remember that God acknowledges the sacrifice that his son made for you and you can be confident that your sins will be forgiven now and for all eternity because of what Jesus has done. But he acts on your behalf now as your advocate who pleads in your defence. But then John finishes with this sentence. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, propitiation is a word you don't hear very often. It's a word which sometimes embarrasses Christians. What I say to don't don't be embarrassed about technical talk. Uh, every different field of human endeavour. If you're trying to talk to someone about computers, you've got to learn computer language. If you want to talk about music, you've got to learn about music language. If you want to talk about cooking, you've got to talk cooking language. Well, the Christian faith has some technical terms. And if you want to understand it, you need to just get your head around some of them. And they're not that hard. But propitiation means to turn away anger. It means to render someone favourable. Have you ever been in an argument or a disagreement with someone and you talk to them and you realise, hmm, things aren't quite right between us? Something has to change where their demeanour towards you is rendered favourable. Propitiation means that God had his mind changed about you and me because God was angry at our sin but Jesus took our place and he paid the price that we deserve to for our sin and as a result, God now looks on us favourably. That's the miracle of what took place on the cross. God's anger was turned aside. His demeanour towards us was made favourable. And so John's writing this letter to assure the people that he has his deep concern for, his little children in the faith, that when they listen to the teaching of John, who learned it from Jesus and who was taught this in company with all of the other apostles, when they hold fast to that and don't depart from it and don't mangle it by adding to it or subtracting from it, 
they're safe now and in eternity because they have a faithful and just God and they have a king, Messiah, who laid down his life for them and turns God's anger aside and who assures them now and for all time that their sins have been forgiven and a debt has been paid. So First John is this wonderful letter where John writes to persuade the readers back then and right now that we can know that we've been forgiven, that we can know we've been welcomed into God's family, all because of what Jesus has done for us. And so what I'd say is accept no substitute because when you hear it from the apostles who were taught by Jesus, that's the right chain and they've written it down so that we can, can understand it and, uh, and, and benefit from it in our day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you praise as the Almighty. Uh, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we know that you're a faithful and just God. We know that you're a God that hates sin. And yet in your mercy, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to be our saving sacrifice, the King who laid down his life as a servant. We thank you that even now he lives to plead for us as our advocate. So please help us to be swift to confess our sin. Help us not to cling to sin or to hide from you in shame. Please help us to walk in the light as you're in the light and find that by doing that we're in fellowship with uh, your people now and through all the generations of those who have trusted Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to grow in our assurance that these things are true because they come to us from Jesus through his apostles and and in in the scriptures. Father, we pray that you would help us all Uh, to live in the light as you're in the light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.